0: Gemara Nksubis tells us an event that happened with Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai. This is shortly after the Chorben Bayesheni, the Beis Migdish has been destroyed. Most of the Jews of Yerushalayim have been exiled. And Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai was still living in Eretz Yisrael, but he as well no longer lived in Yerushalayim. And the Gemara says, One day Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai, he was riding on his donkey, he was going out of Yerushalayim, he had come in to visit. Mahalchem his Talmidim, his students were following after him. along the road he sees a young woman. Shaysam Bengali, Behemton who was gathering up oats from the excrement of the Arab Behimas. The Behemoths would... Excrete on the side of the road, and she was gathering the some of the remains in there. There was some oats, something edible. She gathered them to eat. Came in Shirasa, so when she saw him, the great Rabbi Yochanan coming, <clears throat> she made herself more beautiful. She straightened down her hair, made herself somewhat presentable. The amdel l'funav, and she stood in front of him. Love, she said to Rabbi Paniseni, Rabbi, feed me, give me food. Allah, he said to him, Biti Mia, "Who are you?" Allah, she said to him, Ben Gurion, ani. I am the daughter of Nakadmon Ben Gurion." The tells us that Nakadmin Ben Gurion was one of the wealthiest Jews in Yerushalayim. There were three Jews who could have supported the city for twenty-one years. One of them was this individual, Amallah. ben said, "Biti, my daughter." The fabulous wealth of your father's house, where did it go? Armelow, she said. isn't that the mushal that he say in Yishlaim, Melech the salt, the preservative of money, is Chaser, is taking away. Sodaka is the preservative of money. And and he finally, she said, he said back to her. But your father-in-law's house, where did that money go? Bazev Iberzeh, and they were together in business. And when this one went down, they went down together. she said, Rebbe, do you remember when you signed on my Ksuvah? At which point Rabbi Ochai turned to his Talmudim and said, I remember when I signed on this woman's Ksuba and I read the words one million dinari zahav, and one million golden coins. A typical ksuba is two hundred zehuvim kesef, and this woman's ksuba was infinitely more valuable—a fortune of money that's hard to imagine. And when Rabbi, 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 Rabbi Yochanan Menzakai said those words, he said, "Ashrechem Yisrael, praise be are you Yisrael, chosim shamokum. When you do the ritzon Hashem, ainkel uma veloshan Shalatasbem, Not a single nation can, can touch you." However, when you don't do what Hashem wants, the Moser, you're given over to a lowly nation, and not just a hand of an, a lowly nation, and you're given over to the behemas of an Ummah Shafala. Ryochanan was saying, look what happened to this woman. She had gone from such wealth to now picking out the from the excrement of the Bahamas. That's because the clients' role were, were no longer doing the Ratzan Hashem. And there is a tremendous amount for us to take from this Gemara. And let's start with the obvious point. Money comes and money goes. The Gemara describes it as a zuz, the coinage in the time of the Gemara was called a zuz because a zuz moves. Here's a daughter of a wealthy man, but a wealthy man of such phenomenal, phenomenal proportions. And she ends up in such a state. And this is something that we mortals have a lot of difficulty with. We assume, I'm rich. This is who I am. This defines me. I'm a wealthy individual, and I'll always be there. But they tell us that money comes and money goes. And oftentimes, even if you're Zohar to keep your money, it doesn't mean you'll have it forever. I've seen this with my own eyes. A man will be wealthy his whole life. Do very well. For decades. And at the very end of his life, somehow it is he loses all of his money. And the Rishonim explained why. This man was destined to be wealthy. That was good for him. That was what Hashem decreed for him. But it wasn't necessarily the right thing for his children. Had he died a wealthy man, his children would have inherited his wealth. And because that wasn't appropriate for the life setting of his children, Hashem arranged it that the wealthy man's money leaves him and before he dies, it's gone, he dies a poor man. And when you begin seeing this type of changeovers, <clears throat> and you see people who had tremendous ashiras and you see them come down, and you see regular people go up, you begin to look at money a little bit differently. So one concept that it's worthy for us to take from this gemara is simply the idea <clears throat> that money comes and money goes. But there's another concept, I believe that's also very important, and that is, melech Mammon chaser. If you want to keep your money, the Gemara is telling us what you do. Preserve it. How do you preserve your money? By giving tzedakah. It's the preservative of money. And the Gemara asked Akasha, how could she say that? Her father was a phenomenally huge Va tzedakah. He gave a tremendous amount of money. Nanim <clears throat> used to line up. How could she say that what caused my father's downfall is he didn't give enough tzedakah, it's not true. And the answers answers that he gave a lot, but not in accordance to what he could have. In accordance to the strength of the chamor you put on the pile, you could give a lot, but if it's not appropriate, if it's not enough, it's not going to work. And this is another important concept, that if you want to keep your money, you have to understand why it is that Hashem gave it to you and what's needed to keep it. But what I really want to focus on is a very different point, And that is the Mashah's observation. Says Mashah, let's look carefully what are the words <clears throat> that Rabbi Yochanan Mitzakai says. <clears throat> he sees this sudden, sudden change. <clears throat> he sees this daughter of the wealthiest man in Yishalayim go to picking out <clears throat> dung. And he says, Ashreichim <clears throat> Yisrael. When you're serving Hashem, no one touches you. But when you violate the will of Hashem, then you're lower than the lowest, you're down below. The Moshe says, I don't understand something. I understand when the clients will serve Hashem while you're above every other nation. We're given of pratis. Hashem is directly involved in our lives, and as long as we keep the will of Hashem, As long as we do what Hashem wants, Hashem takes care of us. But if we violate Hashem's will, we shouldn't be lower than every other nation. We should be the equivalent. We should be on their level. Just like the other nations don't get specific, special divine intervention. If the Jewish nation leave Hashem, then they should be just like everyone else. We should be equal to them. Why should we be lower? And then the Shah says something so eye-opening that it is literally life-changing. <clears throat> he says, Because every nation has a sar and a mazel, has a type of malach who's responsible to feed them. That malach is the one who takes care of the needs of that nation, but not the Klay israel. The Klay israel deal with Hashem directly. If we serve Hashem, if we do what we're supposed to, then Hashem takes care of us. <clears throat> if not, if it could be Hashem turns away. But that's not the system via which Hashem runs the world for the rest of the nations. Every other nation has a sar and a malach, a spiritual entity, of force. It's a type of malach who's responsible to feed that nation, who's responsible for them earning a living. So if a guy does what he's supposed to, or doesn't do what he's supposed to, it doesn't matter. Hashem puts someone in charge, Hashem made a proxy, and there's a sar and a malach who's responsible to make sure that that nation's needs are taken care of, so they're always taken care of. But it's not true with the Klyisroel, we're directly involved with Hashem, if we do what we're supposed to, Hashem takes care of us, if not, Hashem leaves us. And this Masha is very difficult to understand because what he seems to imply is that no one can earn a living without some type of divine intervention, whether it be Hashem or this Malach or a Tsar. But that doesn't seem to be true. There are many, many competent MBAs out there, plenty of shrewd businessmen, a lot of sharp lawyers. They can take care of themselves. They don't need a Tsar. They don't need a Malach. And let's even say you're right, a Jew ends up not doing what he's supposed to. He could be a brilliant businessman. I'm sure he can earn a living. So this Moshar is very difficult to understand because he seems to imply that the Goyim can earn a living because they have this spiritual force, this sar, this mazl. And The Jewish people don't have that, they have Hashem. Number one, it doesn't make sense that a Guy should need this sar and a to earn a living. And number two, even if Hashem leaves this Jew alone, I'm sure the Jew is quite wise, quite capable, they're good businessmen, why can't he earn a living without it? And to understand what the Mashar is sharing with us, what we need to do is step back a little bit and try to understand Hashem as much as we can. And it's a little ironic, because in our religion we spend a tremendous amount of time learning Torah, doing mitzvahs, and it would almost sound like the only thing missing from our religion often is God. We learn about Sharshan <clears throat> Agach we learn about Sukkah Agav Sukkah, <clears throat> we learn a lot of intricate halachas that have to do with the details of running of our lives. We have various mitzvahs <clears throat> that keep us busy all day. But thinking about our Creator, <clears throat> thinking about Hashem in any real deep manner, almost seems like it's overlooked. It's not the way it's supposed to be, <clears throat> but unfortunately it is. And so let's spend a minute <clears throat> trying to relate to Hashem on some level. And to begin with, <clears throat> let's start with the Gemara's observation. Mi yimmalel gevuras Hashem, <throat> who is it who can sing the praises of Hashem? Yashmiya <clears throat> Kultilaso, the ones who are able to understand and give over all of His praises. The Gemara says the average human being is incapable of praising God. And the Gemara gives a mushal. <clears throat> Imagine you have two peasants living in a kingdom. But they're very simple people. <clears throat> and one day they're having a conversation. And one of the peasants turns to his friend and says, You know, the king, wow, the king is so rich. <clears throat> Why, I bet you the king has over, uh, over a hundred silver coins in his in his treasury. His friend says, "Nah." A huh, hundred silver coins? You don't have a clue. The king is so rich, but he has a hundred gold coins. Both of those peasants are degrading the king. Because the king's wealth isn't measured with a hundred silver or gold coins. The king has treasure houses filled with diamonds and pearls and emeralds. But it's a wealth that's so beyond these peasants' understanding that in their attempt to compliment the king in an attempt to praise the king, they actually debase him. And that's how Chazal described why it is that when we daven, we use the words that Chazal, our sages, wrote. Because they had at least an inkling, at least they had a, a glimpse of the glory, the majesty of Hashem. And because of their mind's eye view, they were at least able to sing praises in a way that were not totally degrading, And that's why the average person shouldn't sing praise, we should use Chazal's words. And that muscle I think, is very important. But I'd like to share with you that that muscle worked back 2,000 years ago, but in our current world it misses the point dramatically. Our knowledge of science today, our knowledge of the universe today, so exceeds mankind's wildest dreams that that muscle is insignificant and is almost wrong. The current known universe is comprised of a hundred billion galaxies, each containing a hundred billion stars. It's an expanse, it's so wide and so vast that it literally baffles the mind. And when you study a single cell and you understand that it's far more sophisticated far more intricate than New York City, and you study the systems in that cell, and you recognize that a single human being is comprised of trillions of those cells, and you recognize that there are 7 billion of those human beings on this planet, and you recognize that this planet is 90-odd million miles away from the sun, and that our own little planetary system of one-sun and eight or nine planets, depending on who's counting, <clears throat> stretches out over an expanse of billions and billions of miles. An expanse that's so wide and so vast that it's unimaginable. And you recognize that our little, tiny planetary system is nothing compared to the Milky Way. <clears throat> the Milky Way galaxy is so <clears throat> wide and so vast that it's almost unimaginable. We measure distance in rather convenient terms. We measure distance based on feet, based on miles, maybe hundreds of miles. And that's okay to measure things in our own local planetary system. But how do you measure things when you need to measure much larger distances? Miles and hundreds of thousands of miles and millions of miles just no longer become convenient. You see, from here to the moon, we can measure 250,000 miles. From here to the sun, 90 million miles. But how do you measure distances in space? You can no longer use numbers that we are accustomed to because it's too cumbersome. So science reverts to a different system. They use the speed of light. Light travels at 186,000 miles a second. Measure how long that light will travel in a minute, in an hour, in a week. And you have a system to measure distances. So let's do our local math. From here to the moon, one and a quarter seconds. Light travels very quickly. From here to the sun, oh, it's about eight minutes. Very, very fast. It doesn't take light long at all to travel those 90 million miles because light is hurtling out at an almost incomprehensible speed of 186,000 miles every second. If you'd like to get an idea of the expanse of the universe which we currently live in, ask yourself this question. What is the distance between our sun and the closest nearest star? Every star we see in the night sky is equivalent to our sun or maybe even more powerful. Some a little bit smaller, most are bigger. So what is the distance between our local star, the sun, and the next closest one? Well, scientists tell us the next closest one is Alpha Centauri. And the distance between our sun and Alpha Centauri isn't measured by, oh, I don't know, a couple of million miles, nor even a couple of hundred million miles. The distance between our sun and Alpha Centauri can only be measured by light. Light traveling at 186,000 miles a second, <clears throat> multiply that by the minute, by the hour, <clears throat> it takes light 1,500 days. <clears throat> because even though it hurtles out at a speed that's almost incomprehensible, <clears throat> there's such a distance between our sun and the next nearest star <clears throat> that for 1,500 days, day after day, month after month, <clears throat> that light has to travel because the expanse is so beyond our comprehension That is the distance. However, in our own local Milky Way galaxy, there aren't just a couple of stars. It's not just like the Sun and Alpha Centauri. Scientists tell us that there are 100 billion such stars. Our own local Milky Way galaxy is comprised of a hundred billion stars, each as powerful as the sun or more powerful, each as spread apart as the sun to Alpha Centauri, spread apart across this expanse of the Milky Way galaxy that is literally beyond human comprehension. But when scientists revert to mashalim, to parables, then it's time to open your eyes. You see, when scientists use a muscle. what they mean is we don't have a frame of reference. See, we're accustomed to using parables because we're dealing with concepts that are beyond us. How do you understand the world to come? How do you understand spirituality? It's out of our frame of reference. We're physical beings. So we use a parable because a parable helps bridge the gap. But when scientists who live in the physical world use parables, you open your ears and you listen very carefully. Scientists give us a parable, a mushel. If you'd like to know how large the known universe is, take this wide, vast expanse called the Milky Way Galaxy, and <clears throat> compare it to the known universe. It's the equivalent of comparing a coffee cup to the United States of America. Because in the known universe, there are a 100 billion galaxies, each as powerful, <clears throat> each as dense, each as filled as our own Milky Way galaxy spread across this expanse of 13 billion light-years of ever-expanding space. And knowing that Hashem said, Vayehi, and all of this came into being, is a very eye-opening and moving concept. And so with that understanding, we have to recognize the fact that any attempt that we'll have to understand Hashem, to relate, to Hashem, to in some level define Hashem, is going to be so limited that it's not like the peasant trying to describe the riches of a king. I don't even know if maybe it's an ant who's sitting on a rock trying to describe Mount Everest, but even that maybe pales pals in comparison, because Hashem is so wide, so vast, so great, so beyond limits, so beyond our understanding that it is very, very difficult for us to relate to Hashem. And the only way that we relate to Hashem is through the middos that Hashem exhibits, through the character traits, through the way that Hashem interacts in this world. And the primary middah with which Hashem interacts with this world is the middah of chesed, the character trait of giving kindliness. And if you look about this world, what you see is a world manifest with Kindliness, love, tremendous care. And the of Zavavah explains to us, if you take the most kindly, merciful human being you've ever met, take a man so brimming, filled with love, compassion, and then take that compassion and multiply it by 10,000, 10,000 times, you will not begin to understand the love, the mercy, the compassion that Hashem has for every one of His creations. And with that, we can now understand the Pasuk initially. The Pasuk says, If you oppress a Dal, if you have a poor man and you oppress him, you don't take care of his needs, but you make it more difficult for him, you degrade his creator. And the Malbim is bothered by the problem. Just because you didn't take care of the needs of this poor man, because you oppressed him, What does it have to do with embarrassing Hashem? What does it have to do with debasing Hashem? And explains the Ma'abim, don't you understand? Hashem created the whole world to give. Hashem is the ultimate motive. And Hashem made everything complete. Hashem made the wild kingdom. Hashem made all of the plants. And Hashem made man. And all of their needs Hashem took care of. Why is it that there are poor people in the world? It's not because Hashem doesn't have money and certainly not because Hashem doesn't care. The reason that Hashem made rich people and poor people is to afford the rich man a tremendous opportunity. You will be given the chance to be the one who gives life to the poor man. If you do what you're supposed to and you give money to that man, you are considered the one who's giving him michya, giving him sustenance, giving him life. Hashem doesn't need your money. Hashem doesn't need you to support the ani. Hashem gave you this golden opportunity to take that which is temporal, that which is passing, this fleeting thing called gold, and create something eternal with it. You could buy your world to come, and you could support this poor man, and it's considered as if you gave him life. But what happens if you don't do what you're supposed to do? What happens if you say, no, I don't want to take care of your needs. I'll take care of my own, please, thank you. And then you're debasing Hashem. Why? <clears throat> because what you're implying is that Hashem created this poor man and didn't create for him Mikhya, didn't create for him sustenance. And you're implying that Hashem left something out of the creation, as if to say Hashem created someone and didn't give him sustenance. And it's debasing Hashem. Because how could it be that the ultimate Metiv, the giver, <clears throat> the one who's so loving, who's such a benefactor, could have created something and not create its needs met. Hashem didn't do that anywhere in the wild kingdom. Hashem didn't do that anywhere in the world. And if you don't take care of the unease needs, what you're doing is you're creating a situation that looks like Hashem created a man and didn't have his needs met, and you're debasing Hashem. And this concept... Man the one who gives life and gives sustenance is one of the basic tenets of our religion. We say it every time we bench. Hazan Hashem, you are the one who sustains all of the world. You feed them, but with your goodness, over with mercy with kindliness. But that doesn't only mean man. That means the entire world. Hashem, you feed everyone from the baboon in the African rainforest to the seal in the Arctic, from the camel in the desert to the iguana at the equator. You are the one who takes care of all of your creation's needs because you are good. Because that is the mid of Hashem. And this understanding that when Hashem creates someone, Hashem doesn't leave them and doesn't create them without sustenance is a fundamental concept that we have to understand. Hashem is the one, if it could be, who feels responsible for sustaining the universe. On a physical level, that means Hashem created physicality and Hashem maintains it. On a far more practical level, It means that Hashem created the ecosystems and maintains them. And as much as man fears for the ecology, fears for the health of the planet, it's Hashem's world, and Hashem runs the world in different ways. And that's ultimately the job of Hashem, to make sure that every animal has its needs met, and surely the reason for it all, namely, Adam, man, the purpose, the apex of the entire planet, that his needs are met on a regular day. But the problem is that we don't see the world that way. And the problem is that in our mind's eye, and certainly in our day-to-day life, it doesn't look like that's what's really happening. And I want to share with you an observation to help focus on this point. Imagine it's a Friday night. The Balabas just made Kiddush. Everyone goes into the kitchen to wash. He takes a knife, <clears throat> he makes a little slice in the challah, and he says, Baruch Hashem, blessed be you, God, Elokeinu, our God, Melech Olam, King of the universe, HaMotzi Lechem in aritz, you bring forth bread from the ground. Now, <clears throat> what you should say as soon as the Balabas says those words is, Sir, with all the respect, you just lied. Because God did not bring forth that bread from the ground. I buy my bread in the bakery. The baker buys a flour from the mill. <clears throat> the mill buys the wheat from the farmer. What does God have to do with it? Maybe you'll tell me God created the world, but God did not bring forth this bread that I'm now to eat. So how do we make that bracha? <clears throat> how do we say Hashem? motzi Lechem, and Art, you the one who brings forth bread from the ground, when it doesn't seem to be true. And to understand this, we need to understand a little bit more, and a little bit more clearly, how it is that Hashem runs the world. And the Chovos of Vavos makes a very interesting observation in Shar B'China. He says that there are certain things that the human race takes on as a given that are completely, utterly illogical. One, for instance, is a thing called gold. <clears throat> gold is yellow, soft, and basically useless. What possible use does gold have? First of all, there's not much of it on the planet. And more than that, <clears throat> you really can't do much with it. It's not a very usable, <clears throat> not a very purposeful metal. And yet for history, the entire <clears throat> history of mankind, there's been a love of gold, <clears throat> gold has been coveted, there's been a tremendous preciousness to gold. Explains the Chavos above us, this is supernatural. This is not just because of convention or, <clears throat> or custom. Hashem put a love of gold into mankind's heart because Hashem wanted there to be market economies. You see, if I have my 12 sheep and you have your three cows and we want to exchange, <clears throat> it's very hard, it's very cumbersome. I'll take my 50 <clears throat> bushels of wheat, Versus your corn versus your acre, and we'll. It's very difficult to trade and very difficult to have buying and selling unless you have a standard of measure. But there is no standard of measure. To allow for there to be ease of trading, <clears throat> Hashem put this almost insane love of gold and silver into mankind's heart, and now there's something that's precious, <clears throat> there's something that's a commodity. That's something that's a standard via which we can measure because this is the commodity that everyone wants, everyone covets. And now it's very easy. My three sheep are worth one ounce of gold, your 12 cows are equal to that, and now we have a method via which we can buy, we could sell, and now we have a method via which mankind as a whole can benefit. And if you study history, what you find is Behind the scenes of a successful civilization, behind the scenes of every invention, behind the scenes of mankind's success is Hashem. We're all impressed with the inventor. We're all impressed when someone comes out with a new technology. Thomas Edison was not the brightest electrician of his day. As a matter of fact, there were many men who knew far more about electricity and the theory of it than Edison did. And Edison made many blunders. But I heard my Rebbe, <clears> Shiva Zatzal, <throat> say in the name of the father of David, <clears throat> that whenever there is a technology that Hashem wants to give over to the world, whenever there's a new understanding, Hashem makes it accessible, <clears throat> makes it available at a certain point, and whoever happened to have been at the forefront then would have been the one to discover it. <clears throat> if it weren't Edison, it would have been somebody else. Because at certain times during history, Hashem wants certain knowledge to be available, wants certain knowledge to be out, then anyone who's there is going to be the one to discover it. It wasn't Edison's brilliance. It was the fact that Hashem wanted that out. And if you'd like to see Hashem running the world, study history, study civilizations, and study systems of government, I'd like to share with you, I believe personally, that one of the most divinely, or at least one of the most clearly divinely written documents is the U.S. Constitution. When you read those words, you get the sense that they could not have been written by regular men. And I'd like to share with you they weren't. No, it's true that Jefferson penned them. It's true that they were written by the founding fathers, but they were divinely directed. And if you're not sure that I'm right, read 1776 by McClue and read about what the odds of the American Revolution being successful were. In 1775, when the British took over Boston, and it was immediately before the Revolution, and they came with 20,000 regular soldiers, George Washington was appointed leader of the American troops. But there was no army, they didn't have uniforms, they really didn't have weapons. And when they were marching, getting ready to fight against the British regulars in Boston, Washington asked for an inventory, how many men, how many rifles, how many bullets. And what he discovered was that they had enough gunpowder gun for nine rounds of bullets per soldier. Meaning to say they were so outnumbered and so outmanned, their equipment was so poor. When Washington heard those words, he turned white and couldn't speak for a half hour. And if you read story after story, it was clear that they should have lost that war many a time over. But more than that, the whole idea of a revolution, the whole concept of turning it around and that it should become successful, that it should spread from man to man, and that the idea should take hold, and that the idea should have a firm root within the hearts of these people. If you'd like to see Hashem running the world, study the winds that blow, the social trends that happen, <clears throat> those feelings that somehow mankind gravitates towards, those ideas that somehow take hold. And you will not find me a social scientist in the world who could explain why some fads take off and some don't. <clears throat> some novel ideas become so popular and some, despite their integrity, just fail. And if you'd like to see a shim. I say, all you need do is study history and watch Hashem orchestrate the events by putting thoughts into people's minds, revealing certain information, bonding together certain groups with a commonality of feeling, and you're watching Hashem running the world. And at a certain point in time, Hashem deemed it appropriate that there should be an industrial revolution. There should be knowledge given to man Knowledge of plenty, knowledge so available, there should be industry and there should be inventions, from a plow to a printing press to a, all of the machinery. But the wisdom of it was given out piece by piece. Man was given the thought to produce it, to use it, and piece by piece a very different world came about. And if you'd like to understand how we make that bracha of hamotzi, It's because if you'd like to know why there isn't anarchy in this country today, it's not because of government, and it's not because of law and order. It's because Hashem so deemed it proper that this government should work, that this current society should remain in the way it is. And the reason why the fellow in the mill decides he should keep doing business, and the reason why the economy as a whole stays around is because Hashem makes sure that people have the right ideas, the right thoughts, and if you'd like to see Hashem behind the scenes, and watch a successful civilization, you watch food brought to the market, and you're watching Hashem behind the scenes and giving wisdom to this man, orchestrating this person's thoughts, gathering together an entire society so that there should be food, so that there should be sustenance, so that there should be law and order, and so that there should be an environment where human beings can succeed. And when we make that brach on Friday night, And when we make that bracha, every time we eat, what we're acknowledging is not just that Hashem created the world, not only that Hashem maintains physicality, but the systems of order, society as a whole, government, the concepts that keep mankind going are governed directly by Hashem. Hashem is behind the scenes running it. Hashem is orchestrating it from Minnesota to Missouri to Milwaukee, throughout this country, throughout the planet, Hashem is there orchestrating, actively involved in keeping things going as they should be going. And when I make that ha I'm acknowledging the fact that Hashem is intimately involved in the runnings of the world. And this concept, that if it could be, Hashem feels responsible to maintain the world is one of the basic tenets of our religion. When Hashem created the world, he did it for a very specific purpose. And because Hashem is the ultimate giver, <clears throat> Hashem, if it could be, feels responsible. If I invited you to my house, how can I how can I not feed you? How can I not give you a place to sit and rest? Hashem <clears throat> created the world to give, Hashem created the world to give us a chance to grow, to accomplish, <clears throat> to reach our portion in the world to come. And as unimportant as this world is, every part of it has been created with such wisdom and forethought for man's benefit. And Hashem is actively involved to make sure that everything continues in a way that mankind can succeed. And if you would like to see, much like a symphony orchestra, you don't have to see the conductor, but when you go to the symphony orchestra, the 81 instruments playing together, the 81 instruments with the harmonies the melodies, the strings, the wind section, the coordination of it all screams out that someone is conducting it. Someone wrote the music. Someone is guiding it. When you see a world so vast and harmonious continuing to exist, you see Hashem. On the physical level, when you see stars and suns and moons, when you see ecosystems, when you see biology and chemistry still existing and still working together, you see Hashem, but even more so on a societal level. <clears throat> when you see systems of government, when you see groupings of men, when you see large corporations, <clears throat> when you see an economy that's flourishing, you're seeing Hashem orchestrating the scenes from behind, keeping things going, and that's what the Pasuk means, and <clears throat> that's what we say, Hazan es olam Kulo, Hashem, you feed the world. Who knows in lechem l'chol You alone give bread to all mankind, because Hashem is the creator, maintainer, and orchestrator of all the physicality and everything in the world. And with that, let's make an observation. Imagine you get a chance to meet Phil. Phil's a from Orthodox Jew, very nice guy. And you know, you notice that he goes to shul. And he <clears throat> learns a dafayomi, and he domins, and <clears throat> you're pretty impressed, pretty good guy. And then as he's uh, putting away his talus and filling, you hear him say these words, well, <clears throat> that was for Hashem, and now this is for me, and with those words, he goes off to work. Okay, not bad. I mean, listen, he did for Hashem, right? He learned, he davened, and now he's got to earn a living, right? He's <clears throat> that was for Hashem, and, and this is for me. And you're pretty impressed with Phil except that Phil is half a kofer. He's at least 50% a heretic. <clears throat> because if you believe that God lives in the Beis Medrash, <clears throat> God is in the shuls, in the synagogues, and the houses of worship, but in the marketplace, it's my wisdom, <clears throat> it's mankind's acumen, then you've got about 50% of the story right, and maybe even less than that. And one of the basic understandings that we need to understand Grab hold of on a regular basis is that Hashem doesn't live in the base medrash only. Hashem is one who sustains everything, including Wall Street, including corporate America, including the global economy. And Hashem doesn't just live in the base medrash, Hashem runs the world. And if that's hard to really feel, if it's hard to be marguished that on a real Operative level, let me share with you one observation. In this world we live in, there's something called rain insurance. Let's say you're a caterer, and you're planning a large outdoor event, I don't know, maybe a Lagba Omer event, and there are literally tens of thousands of dollars of expense, maybe hundreds of thousands of dollars of expense. You take out rain insurance. What is rain insurance? What happens if it rains? <clears throat> if it rains, then all the money that I spent on hot dogs and hamburgers and, and labor and et cetera, months of planning, months of advertising, all of it, goes down the drain. So you take out rain insurance, you spend a few thousand dollars, so that if it rains, you're covered, they'll cover, premiums will cover the expense, and you'll, you won't you will get wiped out. I have a simple question. Assuming you're a sharp businessman, why do you take out rain insurance? Just read the weather report. Let's say it's two, three months before the event. Just kind of look through the weather reports and go figure out what it's going to be like in May. What, what's so, what do you need to waste thousands of dollars? We have satellite Reports today, we have Doppler measurements, We we have all kinds of sophisticated systems. Why don't you just read the weather report and save the thousands of dollars? Well, the answer really is quite simple, because to predict tomorrow's weather, you need to know about the weather today across most of North America. To predict three days from today, you need to have a view of the weather across the entire northern hemisphere. And to predict out five days from today, you need to have a clear grip of the entire world. You see, with satellite imagery, with Doppler radar, with high-resolution computer models, as sophisticated as mankind has gotten at telling what the weather will bring, we've only gotten it uh, 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 to within a few days at best. And how many times does the weather report even three days from now or five days from now get it wrong? And that's a very important observation because despite the fact that science has evolved tremendously and despite the fact that mankind's technological wisdom is astonishing, there's also much that we don't know. And as man is very, very poor at telling the weather two months forward, man is also very, very poor at predicting the state of the economy. In 1929, there was a worldwide depression. The market crashed, and it wasn't just the United States. The entire world economy trashed. Done. Finished. And if you speak to people living at the time, there was no one who had money. You could have a great business. You could have a great product. But no one had money to buy it. So everyone, every man, woman, and child was poor. There was just no one who had money to buy things. Occasional Rockefeller would give out dimes, but as a whole, no one had money. But here's the strange part. Ask market economists. Ask social scientists. Sir, could you explain to me what happened? Well, uh, consumers lost confidence in the market. Hmm, that's interesting. Could you explain to me why? Mm, no, not really. With your MBA, with your PhD in, econo- in economics, you cannot explain why it is that for some reason, uh, I don't know why, the consumers lost Confidence in the economy, they began selling, they began selling, they began a uproarious <clears throat> sell motion, and before you know it, it was selling their stocks and nothing was worth anything. Ask somebody to explain to you why in 1987 the market crashed and lost 22% of its value. Well, we have theories, we believe, we're going to try in the future to prevent them, but when you study economy, its expansion <clears throat> or its contractions, whether it exceeds or doesn't, what you quickly find is it's about as predictable as the weather. Internet stocks in the late 1990s crashed. The Internet bubble burst. But it was the strangest thing. They were growing and growing and growing, and everyone, everyone saw it just wouldn't end. And it ended. But why then? And why did it end? And why did it affect the whole stock market? But let's come a little bit closer in time. In 2007, our own market here in this country and much of the, much of Europe as well, went through a tremendous crisis, the mortgage crisis. I was there when I heard the words that Citibank, Citibank, one of the largest banking institutions in the world, with a capitalization of some ten billion dollars, the shares were selling at a dollar a share, and no one would buy them. Because Citibank was on the brink of bankruptcy, why did the mortgage crisis suddenly hit, and why did the bubble burst? So people will give you the thoughts and the reasons, but why did it continue for years, and why did it affect everything? And why? And why? And, why? and if you'd like to watch Hashem running the world, and just study those realities, and here's the point: one worldwide depression, and you and I are both out of a job. You know, in the 60s, everyone knew that if you wanted job security, you become an engineer. you work for AT&T as an engineer, and you're taking care from cradle to grave, your kid's education, your retirement, you're set. And then something happened, and all of a sudden AT&T was no longer the giant corporate that it was. And Verizon, which had three times its market capitalization, was threatening to buy it out. And all of these engineers who became VP of development, VP of research, found themselves laid off. In the 1990s, all the manufacturing went to China. In this past decade, all the programming went to India. And when you begin to look around, you begin to realize that this thing called the economy is very, very fragile. And it's very, very tenuous. And you and I don't control it. And if you'd like to see Hashem behind the scenes, study its growth, its contractions, and say to yourself, I get it. Hashem is the one who created the world. Hashem is the one who runs the world. And when I open the paper, I see Hashem's plan being enacted. Hashem behind the scenes, putting this thought into this CEO's mind, this thought into this government official, making sure that exactly that which Hashem wants to be will be. And it's strange that we human beings, as intelligent as we can be, often miss this. And I think that's exactly what Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakai was saying. You see, Hashem runs this world. And there are different forces that Hashem uses to run the world. Jews are given Hashem's direct involvement. Hashem is directly involved with them. Hashem deals with each Jew as a separate entity. But Hashem feels that it could be responsible for the entire world, from the African Serengeti to the deserts of the Sahara. And Hashem puts different sarim, different malachim, different spiritual forces in charge of each ummah. And it's not by accident that in China there's enough food to survive. It's not by accident that India has something of an economy that's still functioning. There's a malach, a sar, that's responsible. You and I don't see it. We see man. Because we're living in a very, very temporal, passing phase. We get so caught up in the trees, we don't see the forest. But when you step back in history, you see the world continuing. You see society still existing. You see harmonious systems of government keeping going. You're watching Hashem orchestrate the world. But the system that Hashem uses for the Gentile nations and for the Jews are different. Hashem is olam kulo. Hashem is the one who feeds all of humanity and all of creation. But there are different systems. <clears throat> the Jewish nation are unique. They're special. We have a unique relationship with Hashem. We're children to Hashem. <clears throat> and therefore, when we follow what Hashem wants and we use our time appropriately, <clears throat> when we grow, when we accomplish, Hashem takes care of us as a father, takes care of our needs. But if we stop doing what we're supposed to do, <clears> then <throat> if it could be Hashem turns away <clears throat> and we're left on our own. Does that mean necessarily I'll be poor? <clears throat> Does that mean if I don't keep Torah mitzvahs, I'm going to be impoverished? Not necessarily. If it was that obvious, there wouldn't be Bahira. <clears throat> and therefore it could be that you'll succeed anyway. And it could be even the Jewish nation for a while <clears throat> will succeed financially, even if they're not Torah observant. But understanding <clears throat> that if I keep Hashem's mitzvahs, Hashem takes care of me because that's the relationship we have. And if I don't, then basically Hashem pulls away. There could be other mitigating factors. <clears throat> there could be other mitigating reasons why I'll still have Parnassah, but unlikely. But it's not the way Hashem <clears throat> runs the rest of the world. The rest of the global economy runs <clears throat> because Hashem appointed a malach, <clears throat> a spiritual force for each segment, for each part, to keep it in existence. And the only way a person can grow in understanding is by stepping above the fray, by looking at the world through a glass of history, by looking at it with an eye of a long vision. And then you begin seeing the patterns. You begin seeing Hashem behind the scenes. And you begin getting it. And I'd like to share with you a mushle. As you're probably well aware, most of animal training today is attributed to one concept called positive reinforcement. Probably the single pioneer of the concept was B.F. Skinner, the psychologist. Back in the 20s, he began experimenting with laboratory rats, and what he showed was that if a rat did a certain behavior and very quickly thereafter it was rewarded, it would repeat that behavior. <clears throat> All you had to do was catch a rat doing the right thing, you reward it, and bingo, it would repeat it, hence you're able to train it. <clears throat> catch it doing something you want, reward it, it'll continue doing that behavior, <clears throat> reward it again, it'll continue, etc., etc. But B.F. Skinner was very sophisticated. <clears throat> he set up what's called the, the Skinner box. A Skinner box is a box that you put the rats in, and <clears throat> in the front of the box is a bar, and <clears throat> when the rat hits that bar, a pellet of food comes out. So the first thing you have to do to train the rats is you have to teach them <clears throat> that when they hit the bar, the pellet comes out. So <clears throat> the scientists would put their, the rats in the little box, and initially, <clears throat> every time the rat would hit the bar, a pellet would come out. Bingo, pellet would come out. After a short amount of time, the rat realized that all it needed to do to get a pellet was to hit the bar, and automatically a pellet would come out. But then Skinner wanted to advance the training, and he wanted to train the rat to turn left. So he would only put something behind the bar if the rat turned left. So basically, the rat would hit the bar, nothing would come out. Hit the bar, nothing would come out. But if the rat turned left and hit the bar, bingo, a pellet came out. And eventually, the rat learned that if it turned left and hit the bar, it got the pellet. And then <clears throat> learned that it didn't just turn left, it had to turn left and turn right. If it turned left and turned right and then hit the bar, it got a pellet. And more sophisticated <clears throat> the more sophisticated behaviors were trained. And they've done some pretty impressive things with rats, with animals, <clears throat> all through this concept of positive reinforcement, the bar <clears throat> and the pellet. Here's the muscle. Imagine that we have two laboratory rats in one of these Skinner boxes. We'll give them names, and they'll call one of them Templeton and the other one Wilbur. And Templeton and Wilbur are, are having a discussion. And Templeton says to Wilbur, Hey, Wilbur, you know, you ever notice that guy outside with the white coat and the clipboard? Wilbur says, Yeah. Well, you ever notice, like, every time we hit the bar, he writes something on his clipboard? And so what? No, Wilbur, don't you get it? I'm beginning to think. I'm beginning to put things together, like... And Every time we hit the bar and we get a pellet, he writes it down. What do you want, Templeton? No, Wilbur, don't you say it. I'm. Begin-. Wilbur turns to Templeton. Templeton, I've told you a hundred times. I don't believe in scientists. And that I believe is a very, very powerful muscle, because you could go about this thing called the world, <clears throat> go about this thing called earning a living, and never see the scientist behind putting the pellets into the trapped to come at the bar. You could live a world and make money, make a lot of money, and not see Hashem. But you're living in a very, very tiny world, and you're viewing things from a very small perspective. It's okay if you're a rat not to recognize the scientist, because a rat has a brain the size of a pea. But if you have a human brain, and you're supposed to be intelligent, you're supposed to connect the dots you're supposed to see the patterns of history, and you're supposed to study the world and say, I get it, I see Hashem orchestrating, controlling, running the world. There's not just a scientist, but a very kindly giving scientist who cares deeply, who's intimately involved in the running of my life. And what Rabbi Yochanan Medzakeh was telling his Talmidim was, there are different systems that Hashem uses. Money comes and money goes is 100% true, Because Hashem gives it out in different times to different people in different ways. One of the best guarantees to keep money is to give sadaqah from it because that's a preservative. And specifically, there's a reason because if Hashem granted you wealth, it might well be to feed that money and to feed that poor person. But more than that, you have to understand how it is that Hashem runs the world. Hashem is the mate, Hashem is the giver. Hashem has mercy on every creature every one of his creations. And if it could be, Hashem feels an obligation to keep alive, to give nichia, to give sustenance to all of mankind, all of civilization, and all animals. If on occasion you're granted the unbelievable opportunity to be one who gives sustenance, you're placed in a position where you're allowed the opportunity to give another human being a livelihood, it's a tremendous opportunity to be domed to Hashem but understanding that that's Hashem's role, and understanding that there are different systems that Hashem uses. As a Jew, we are children of Hashem, and Hashem is directly involved in running our day-to-day life, directly involved in our earning a living, and it's Hashem's responsibility to make sure that I have food to eat, clothing to wear, that's Hashem's job. But even if you're not a Jew, Hashem still runs the world. Hashem puts a proxy, but someone in charge... And the only way you can grow is by studying, by thinking. When a person does that, he sees the Anashem. He approaches life in a vastly different way, and he begins to focus on things in a very, very different manner. May HaShem grant us the wisdom and understanding to begin opening our eyes to see this, understand this, and put this into practice.